0: Welcome back guys to episode 39 of the JPS podcast and we have the podcast for himself Eric Helms aka Quali, back on the show and unfortunately this time without his uh, rival Mike Isretel and today we're going to be talking to Eric in regards to all of the things that have changed the game for him and the 3DMJ team in the past one to two years the questions he has and is currently seeking answers to and the challenges he faces on a daily basis as a science communicator. So guys, without further ado, I present to you, QALY, Dr. Eric Helms. On the show, he's back, he's on his own this time, no Mike retell, so we'll have to apologise uh, to you all for that, but I'm sure that what we've got installed today is going to be uh, extremely interesting for many of you, and I'm have no doubt that you'll learn a lot. So, it's going to be a little bit different style of interview. We're not going to be talking about uh, one topic in specific, but more broadly on some of the things that Eric is uh, obviously doing with his practice, his research, um, and his cat. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So, very informal interview. I worded Eric up, and he's obviously taken that quite literally by uh, bringing in some family members. So, (laughs)
1: Absolutely. <laughs> he either Harry? this or he went around meowing and ruining the interview. So, <laughs>
0: how you doing, man? I'm
1: doing well. Thanks for having me back. And uh, just just to let everyone know, we were gonna have Mike, mm. but he clearly was too afraid to show up after being severely wrecked on the last three podcasts we appeared together on. So, we need rest and recovery, I suppose. <laughs>
0: Fatigue management. He's over Absolutely. Yeah. He was. Uh, he reached his ERV. <laughs> So Eric, what I wanted to talk to you today about was um, some of the things that you feel have changed the game for your practice and the guys at 3DMJ over the past 12 months and to have you share with uh, listeners what some of the things you're doing now are in relation to training, nutrition, um, just the general approach that you guys take that's vastly different from say 12 months or two years ago um, and, and why.
1: Yeah, I think um, there's there's different categories for what's changed the game for us. There's stuff around science that might be interesting, some of the nerdy people. There's stuff around uh, technology, and then there's stuff around also like just coaching philosophy, I would say. Um, So, yeah, I would say probably the biggest game changers and aha moments in the science realm would be uh, the work that is – become abundantly clear now that that hypertrophy can occur with almost any load. I think there was a recent paper that Brad Schoenfeld was uh, just sharing uh, last this week showing that 20% of 1RM when you match volume you might not actually reduce, uh, result in the same amount of hypertrophy if you match that volume to like 40 60 80% of 1RM. Uh that said it still might be the same if you trained to failure and did the same number of sets. I haven't looked at the full text, but anyway, um, So the the overall finding that load is not quite a critical determinant for hypertrophy and that more so it's the intensity of effort rather than the intensity of load that you need to focus on, I think has opened up a lot of things for us. I remember in a seminar we did back in 2010, uh, I I said something and and Brad's repeated it as well that, you know, if you're not doing at least 60% of 1RM, it's probably not doing anything, you know, and that was based on old like EMG-based research and some limited data. And and now that we have uh, what I would say is a scientific consensus around the fact that it really comes down to effort and volume, um, that's really opened the doors for us to be more in line with client preferences, to have more tools at our disposal when someone has joint pain, um, to program in ways where you can... uh, Match up movements better with different rep ranges, you know, instead of feeling like, oh, we got to figure out some way to go heavy on everything at some point in our training, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I would say that that's been a, a pretty decent game changer. And in the kind of in the same realm is using uh, blood flow restriction training around injuries with athletes. That's been huge. Um, one client of Jeff's who has tremendous leg development wasn't able to squat or deadlift for an entire contest prep and was basically only doing Uh, blood flow restricted uh, isolation work and you would not know when they got on stage. So I think, uh, those two things have really cemented our, our like experience there and understanding around it. So, um, I think that's been good primarily for, for like injury management, joint pain management and, uh, and, and, and giving a little more, uh, client preferences to people without sacrificing any kind of optimality. Um, that's the science realm. As far as the logistics realm, um, Man, things have changed a lot. Like, uh, there was a time when we weren't weren't using Skype at all. You know, uh, when we didn't even have a Skype program with our with our athletes. Um, there was a time when I remember we would have to occasionally send. Uh, I think it's there's like a an open access version of Excel because some people couldn't download our like the Excel sheets. Uh, and now for most people, we just use Google sheets so that anyone can just look at it, change it in real time. Um, so yeah. And and then the speed of uploads and the ubiquity of cell phones has definitely changed our coaching business. You know, we used to basically have, uh, when we first got someone who applied, we would call them back on a telephone and we would talk to them about our services, um, and then if they were interested, we would email them back, do the PayPal thing, that's still the same, and then get after it via email, and occasionally have calls. Um, now, someone applies online, and it gets you know, processed through our, our administrator, who, who, who has been with us for a long time, she's amazing, uh, shout out to Melissa, and she kind of helps people funnel into the right coaching path, either Skype or week to week, and when I get a coaching report now, it's not just an email page. It is here's a link to my unlisted YouTube video where I'm talking to the camera, telling you uh, how my week went. Here's a link to my Google sheet showing all my all my all my progress. And then here's a here's a, a link to a folder in a cloud with my pictures, or another YouTube link to me going through the poses, or me performing my heaviest sets if I'm a powerlifter. So. Yeah, it, just opening an email looks differently. It's basically like three links pop up versus two page of an email, um, and and Skype and man, it's just uh, our our meetings are now not us driving across a couple of states to all hang out. Well, not a couple of states, but like you know, Brad would sometimes have to come from Reno and uh, Berto would drive from the Bay Area and Jeff would drive from Stockton and we'd all meet up in in my living room back in like 2011. Now we have you know bi monthly meetings over Skype where all five of us are in different physical locations um, and it worked really well. So it's just very cool to see that the uh, the technology is there to support our business. Um, and then finally on the coaching psychology things and I have to give really big props to Andrea and I think this shift happened actually in Melbourne when we were out there um, when she really dived into how at the core essence of, of what is mental health uh, when you are shifting between uh, the mindset and, and the physical uh, condition that needed to to get on stage as a, as a competitor and then going back to the off season, especially, ex- especially, especially for an extended period of time, um, that is basically asking someone to shift between a state of lesser mental health and, and more mental health. And I think that really shook us up as a team, but I think it was a very good thing because there was probably a time when I was like, yeah, you want to get in a natural bodybuilding, do it, it's amazing. And now I think the, uh, the disconnect between all the things I was aware of, like, yeah, and you, you have to develop, you know, potentially a not great re- relationship with food and we have to work away from that. Um, what you used to think was a healthy body composition, now you're going to see a slightly overfat. you may not be satisfied with, with what you see. Uh, your, your tastes are gonna change your libido is gonna drop your relationships are gonna be effective. You're gonna be cranky. You might not sleep well um, All of that is like oh wow that 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 comes with it. So I think we need to be very cautious when we message to people uh, on our broad social media channels of is competitive bodybuilding for you and I think we have we've made sure we have a little more balance of a message for anyone who is kind of in the broader physical culture, like you like, if you're a lifter, uh, I think we, we, we want to give you something when you listen to our podcast, when you read our articles, um, whether you want to get on the platform or not, whether you want to get on stage or not, or whether uh, serious hardcore lifting is just a part of your life, regardless of competition and status. And I think um, we're also much more likely to tell someone, hey, don't worry about competing this year. The stage you won't, you won't go away. Uh, the sports not going anywhere. It's not gonna be popular, but it's not going anywhere. And, um, and you know, I, I, I've, I've had clients who, Hey, I'm going to have a kid next year thinking about competing. And my, my, my first almost immediate reaction is, let's not, let's just hold off. Like let's err on the side of wait till everything lines up perfectly, Mm. you know, because there's, there's an emotional cost that comes from competing, even in experienced competitors. So it's, uh, it's kind of like this this awareness that the thing I love is also potentially harmful, which is interesting, mm. um, and it needs to be done right, and it kind of brings us, I think, more in tune with our actual mission statement of being more holistic. So I would say those are the three big things that, that stand out in my mind of how 3DMJ has changed since we started in late 2009.
0: Yeah, awesome. And on the, uh, I guess, the mental health side of things uh, in relation to bodybuilding, I think this extends far beyond competitive bodybuilding. I think it's just Mm. exacerbated when you obviously, you know, try to get as, you know, lean as what people have to to be competitive these days. But I think it filters down through pretty much anyone who's interested in body composition. um, And it's very important. But I guess what I wanted to ask you was, you know, with the rise in, I guess, awareness of mental health, you know, how do you as practitioners not being, you know, qualified or experienced in, you know, treating or helping uh, people deal with a lot of the, you know, issues that they face, such as depression, anxiety, uh, stress, all those kind of things. You know, how do you approach that at 3 dmj You know, in terms of screening it before telling someone, hey, you know, let's not compete. Or when they do have those issues arise, you know, obviously you can refer them out, but that in itself for many people isn't an option and they're just going to continue doing what they're doing. What do you do in those circumstances?
1: Yeah, that, That's a sticky area. And that's actually another big change that's happened in 3DMJ. You know, um, it wasn't too long ago that we picked up uh, Steve Taylor, who's now our team RD. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, he has some experience with, with more, the more clinical side of nutrition. And then we also developed a relationship with Amanda Rizzo, who is a mental health, health counselor and uh, very interested in the physique culture herself. And she's, you know, she works, does a lot of work for the team behind the scenes. So we're very fortunate to have mm-hmm. uh, both Amanda and Steve and to get their perspectives and to have them involved. Uh, and we hope to have them even more involved as time goes on. Um, but we very much try to operate from our scope of practice. And from our experience, we don't diagnose, we don't treat, we don't, um, tell people they have X eating disorder. We're aware of the the diagnostic criteria. Um, we consult each other as a team. And, you know, we, we, we do act as coaches to our athletes, which is very much, you know, kind of a mentorship slash friend slash peer role. And I think there's value in all of that. Uh, many times people really just need someone who can understand them and provide support mm. uh, and then kind of help them you know, just, just give their unbiased opinion from a place of compassion to help someone make the right decisions for themselves. So we we're not very pushy, but we also set boundaries like if, if we're personally concerned as coaches about the, the health of someone, uh, we will speak up and we try to do that from a place of care and compassion and, and also confidentiality, you know, mm-hmm. cause it's, it's, it's tough stuff to deal with. Um, but like you said, we also know that sometimes, if we say something like, "Hey, you know, I'd really much feel much more comfortable if we worked in concert with that, with a dietitian or a mental health counselor," uh, they might go, uh, "No, thanks. I'll just do this on my own anyway, and do it probably even less safely." So it's it's a balancing act, and um, and I think it really comes down to developing a good relationship with your athlete before you uh, go down that path, and a big part of that like you said, is screening. And it's not that we don't want to work with people who are really in the midst of these struggles. Hell, if we could we, we could help them. We would, but we're just not the best suited to. And we're definitely not the best suited to when they're coming to us in the midst of something like that and we haven't established trust yet. So given we aren't qualified um, and it would be legally dangerous for us, uh, we, we do have uh, questions in our applications that relate to a health status, and we will follow up. And it's it's has caused you know awkward conversations with someone who doesn't know us very well, except for our podcast. And they you know state their their medical health history. And, and we come back and we go, Hey, we'd like to know a little bit more about that. We're a little concerned, and um, you know, people have felt you know singled out or, or judged, and that's certainly not our intention. But it, it truly does come from a place of wanting that person to have the, the best, most appropriate care and also to protect ourselves. As a business, because we don't want to get in a situation where we try to help someone who is who are not qualified to help, make it worse, uh, and that would be on us, you know. So, um, yeah, I think that that's that's something you have to put a lot of time and thought into, and that is something that we do so mm-hmm. uh, so that we can
0: we can do the best by our clients. Yeah, no, I totally agree with all of that, and. I guess to move forward, you know, what questions do you currently have uh, unanswered that you're looking into in 2018?
1: Yeah, so we've, we've proposed the recovery diet as, as a better way to transition from in-season to off-season. And anecdotally and mechanistically, it definitely makes sense. Um, but what I would really love to see done Uh, Would be a comparison between the different approaches that that people would take. Um, You know, in an ideal world, we would have a control group that just does whatever they want, Um, and then we would have a group that is following a more traditional reverse diet, maybe something like a 10% increase in calories, cut their cardio in half, and then do those small 5% jumps after that, uh, week to week, versus someone following a recovery diet where we, you know, estimate their maintenance. Put them in a 10% surplus and cut their cardio in half at, right out of the gates. Um, you know, there, there does seem to be a fine balance of, of, of what's too much and what's not enough. Uh, there was some work that came out of um, North Carolina. I think Trexler was, was the lead author, or at least an author on it. My apologies if I get that wrong for anyone in, in Abby's lab listening. Uh, but they looked at you know, uh, the overfeeding period after a competition. And they found that there was actually a relationship between them. like the more you ate, uh, the more it suppressed testosterone and kind of had this, this binge eating effect. So there was a downside to way overdoing it, and eating too much and gaining too much body fat. But at the same time, if you look at other research, you know, someone who's too conservative might have like a year of not having mm-hmm. a menstrual cycle, you know, and, uh, and, and, and so I think, I think it's that 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 kind of Goldilocks zone we want to find, where where the person needs to be not still restricted, not still in a deficit, putting some body fat and lean tissue back on, but not so quickly that it causes you know additional mental stress. Because hell, seeing yourself just dissipate into a fat mess is is just as equally uh, painful as, as being further restricted after a competition, but just in different ways. So I think investigating that would be really really useful and. Um, very preliminary stages, but there may be some work coming out of uh, Bill Campbell's lab in the future looking at that, which is exciting.
0: That's very cool. That's very cool. Yeah. There is a huge individual response to obviously how people uh, come out of a show. And that is a question that I'd probably, yeah, like to know more about because the recovery diet, it seems to work, but it's very hard to control Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's very hard to control when you, you know, semi-starve someone so that it is definitely interesting and I guess what are the things that you've changed your opinion on um, over the last year or two you know, has there been anything that you've said um, you know, or written about um, or you know, content you've created or just opinions that you've had um, and kept to yourself that now you think, oh shit, I was wrong
1: Oh, no, man. I, I've, I've changed my mind on a fair amount of things, and I, um, I typically don't keep it to myself when I'm wrong. Um, so so here's one you know, that came up in a uh, conversation with, I think, Mike Isretel on a podcast recently. It's been so many times, I just can't ever <laughs> – I can't just dissect them all. But, um, yeah, we used to promote the idea that if you can maintain your loads and training, even if you can't keep the same number of reps – Um, that's going to be a better indicator of whether or not you can keep your muscle mass during a diet. And I think that's kind of right. Like if if indeed your strength does maintain during a contest prep, that's probably a good indicator that you haven't lost size. However, the best way to do that and the best way to maintain size is not necessarily to drop your volume and train for strength while dieting. Mm. Um, I, I think, in fact, you could lose muscle and you know, get better at neur- neurological adaptations, maintain strength, and then, but actually have lost some muscle mass. We, we, it's pretty damn firm right now that we know uh, the biggest variable related to hypertrophy and training is the total amount of, of work and appropriate effort you do. Um, so I think it's this kind of catch 22 where we now know how dieting makes you lose muscle. So in, in overweight individuals, uh, what basically happens is that the muscle protein synthesis response to training is suppressed. In lean individuals, you get hit on both ends. You see an increase in muscle protein breakdown and a suppression of muscle protein synthesis. So, you know, you could basically think, oh, well, I just need to train more since each unit of training has uh, suppressed muscle protein synthesis. However, your recovery is also hindered. So, you can't without it being detrimental and making the situation even worse. So I think that the closest solution we can have to that is trying to be a little more reactive but still objective about how you approach training volume and I don't think you should come out of the gates and just cut it. I think that that will actually make you lose more muscle. You might feel better on the diet. You might be a little more recovered but that will come at a cost. So um, I think that's an appropriate thing to do if you're a non-bodybuilding competitor doing a shortcut because, yeah, sure, you lose a pound for over four to six weeks and you get get back at it and it's fine. But for a competitor, your diet has to end with you getting on stage, you know. Uh, even an off-season powerlifter, I could see cut your volume in half, diet for six weeks, hit your weight class, and then bring your food back up and bring your volume back up and come in and then just do a water cut and you're solid. But, yeah, the bodybuilder is in a unique position where the, there is no – you can't really get away from the diet or at least being at a very low body fat mm. before getting on stage. And you can only bring your calories up so much – before you lose that level of body fat, uh, which to some degree is an independent stressor. So you have to kind of thread the needle a bit more. So, you know, I, I uh, previously we would have had the, 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 the recommendation of just drop your, your volume in a third basically and, and go, go with your prep and then cut from there. But now it's more like probably don't change anything for a couple months, except maybe make their D loads more regular and use a little more autoregulation, mm. uh, And then there will come a point where you don't have a choice and the best option even though it's not ideal, you have to rob Peter to pay Paul. Is to drop volume, uh, to cut some sets back on on the more um, fatiguing exercises like a squat and a deadlift. So I think that's something we've changed our opinion on. Um, another one, going back to the whole you know 60% of one RM minimum load required, we've definitely changed our opinion on that. Um, another one would be I have stated that changes within the normal physiological range of testosterone. Uh, or variations within it don't make a big difference in mm. terms of uh, of muscle gain, and that's like half untrue, half true. James Krieger just did a fantastic yeah. uh, piece on this in uh, in Weightology, which I would recommend anyone to be a subscriber to. James is the absolute man, uh, and it's interesting. The rate of muscle gain doesn't seem to be affected by your your physiological testosterone level, but kind of like your baseline muscularity is. Mm-hmm. So it's not a huge difference like it still doesn't make sense to take a testosterone booster, you know You need like a hundred nanogram per deciliter if I got my measurements right there to see like a 0. 0.4 to 0. 0.6 uh, Kg increase in your baseline muscle level on average, you know, mm. so that's that's not a lot We're talking about a pound, you know if if it goes up by you know, like in most people like average is 400 so like a 30% increase to get a one-pound baseline level of more muscle mass and there's no testosterone boosters that aren't actually a version of testosterone or a pharmacological drug that suppresses estrogen that are going to raise your testosterone that much. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's uh, it's kind of one of those things where it is indeed true that if you are someone walking around with a four-digit testosterone level and you're at the very top end of high normal, before you even start lifting weights, you're going to be more muscular than someone who is at the bottom level. but it's not necessarily predictive of whether you're going to be able to, to gain any faster than the guy with, you know, a 300 testosterone. So, yeah, I would say I was like half wrong on that. Um, so, yeah, that's interesting. Um, and also more importantly is I don't think it's actually changes in testosterone through your lifespan after you've started weightlifting don't seem to be the largest factor that I'm going to predict whether or not you're successful. Like there was a pretty broad survey of uh, powerlifters Uh, and who, based on their blood work, most likely drug-free, and they, in fact, had lower than normal testosterone levels, yet they were champion-level powerlifters. And then we also have just the anecdotal observations that at the elite level in natural bodybuilding, people are hitting their stride in their 30s and 40s, where we know there's been not a large decline, but some decline in in their testosterone levels compared to when they were 18, 19, 20. so yeah, it might be a factor, but it's not the factor. It doesn't override the fact that you spent 20 years in the gym. Mm. Um, you know, not even close. So, uh, so yeah, that, that, those are all things that I, I would say my opinion has shifted on. Um, yeah.
0: No, that was really good. I wanted to um, to press further the uh, auto regulation or, you know, at least the manipulation of, like, training intensity and whatnot and volume, sorry, Um, during dieting phases. um, Mm. You wrote a really good article on Stronger by Science, August, I think it was, last year, um, on auto-regulation, what it is and what it isn't, and you spoke about how it's fast become the buzzword of the industry and, like, people are, you know, either using it as a means to go balls to the wall and just, go off the program or, you know, in essence, you know, to, to put it bluntly, be a little bitch and just get away from hard training. Um, I wanted to, to speak on using auto-regulation whilst you're dieting.
1: Mm.
0: Because this is, obviously I'm experiencing this right now. So this is where, you know, I, I, like, I personally want to know like how, what are your recommendations, um, you know, for when you're, Training through uh you know fat loss phase and especially contest prep um, on using auto regulation and just yeah your thoughts on that
1: yeah, I think that there's some there's some useful things you can do that i like um i'll give you I'll start with the the one cool trick kind of approach to it, and then we can get more philosophical one, after weird,
0: that. one weird trick that'll turn yeah. you into this guy
1: <laughs> yep trainers trainers will hate you um like I really like the proposal of doing a single at a seven or eight or like 85% of one RM on a, on a compound lift to start off a session as a gauge of where's my shit at today? Mm. You know? And if you know, right from the start, like, Oh my God, that six RM felt like a three RM. Um, you know what that day should probably become. It should probably become an accessory work day, a bit of a pump work day. So you can basically combine the idea of assessing readiness, with a flexible template of training. Um, so let, let, let's say you have, for a bodybuilder and prep, you might have your heavier days and your lighter days, uh, and you might have uh, a variable amount of accessory work that you do on each day. So let's say your compound lifts, you've got stuff in the the, the 12 to 15 range, and you've got stuff in the six to eight rep, rep range in this given mesocycle, this made-up mesocycle I'm talking about. Uh, and then for your single joint accessory movements, you just have a list that you need to get done per week, and you got to hit them each twice, right? Let's say that, that 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 in and of itself is auto-regulated, right? So you can pick your accessory movements when you're ready. You can go heavy when you're ready. You can go light when you're ready. But the way you can differentiate between when it might be best to do each day could be that single performance. So if you want to use an RPE basis, that could be I'm going to come in and do a single at a 7, which would roughly be like your, your 4 at max. Uh, or if you're using percentages, you could do like a single at 85 to 90% of 1RM. And then I would probably record it. Uh, you could use velocity if you have access to this. You can compare it to what your normative velocity is at that level. Uh, but if you don't, you can just gauge the RPE. Uh, and if you know what how many reps you, you normally can do at that percentage, you can compare the RPE to the what you normally do and look at the discrepancy. And if you're like within one rep, okay, we can probably – go forward with the plan, but man, if I am super strong or super weak, then I can choose whether I want, whether or not I want to do, okay, today's going to be just mostly accessories and uh, or maybe I'll, I'll just do arms and calves today and come back tomorrow depending on what the schedule looks like or I could go, right, I'm not strong today. Let's see how the volume session goes uh, and then yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. You can do that strength session. I think that's very useful. Um, other things that are interesting that I, I would change during contest prep is I'm much more comfortable with the idea of an auto-regulated deload in the off-season. So uh, for example, uh, uh, a progression model I'll often use is a uh, a linear approach within the mesocycle. So let's say you're you're training in the eight to 12 rep range, you might go 12, with the load going up each week. And then fourth week could be a deload where you do one less set and you use the load that you used from a 12 rep day, but the reps are only eight. So it's the, basically the smallest combination of load and reps and drop a set off It's a light week. Um, but if you're feeling awesome after those three weeks, you can just repeat it again with slightly heavier loads. So kind of starting the mesocycle over with one tick up and load. And then you could assess again at week seven. So um, I would normally recommend not going any more than three mesocycles before you take a deload no matter what. But in the off-season, you could gauge, do I need it after three? Nope. Do I need it after six? Nope. Do I need it after nine? Okay, no matter what, I'm going to take it. Or maybe I do need it after six. Uh, I think you do need some kind of objective criteria or some kind of coach helping you if you're an intermediate or lower, or that will just result in I never take a load or I always take it after three mesocycles. Uh, but during prep, I would be like, you know what? No matter what, let's just take a load every fourth week. Mm. Just because better safe than sorry, uh, things are... are it's prep. You know, that's that's one of those things where I actually think having a, a rule based system of of deloads is uh, should be in there. And I think that's probably why there's this perception that we deload too frequently in 3 dmj I've heard people say that about me, and I think it's because they're often hearing feedback from our clients, who okay. most of the time, a lot of our clients are coming to us during prep. Um, you know, and then the off season, they're given more more loosely structured stuff. But you know, a large amount of the programming we do and the uh, bias we bring to conversations comes from working with athletes while they're dieting. So that may be why we appear a little more conservative with, with that approach. Um, so yeah, that that's some some basic stuff. But yeah, I think um, auto regulation in general can be very useful. Um, I do like going in with a set load in mind, instead of just going pure RPE, because mm-hmm. sometimes you can let the, the, like the loads will just be too variable during prep. Um, but then you can go in with that set load in mind, and if the RPE is way off, then you can adjust. Because mm-hmm. um, I think if you go in just with purely with RPE especially, especially if it's like, sorry about that, your, your first or second prep, you can let your more global subjective feelings get in the way of your ability to gauge RIR. Like there are times, I remember in 2007, uh, my first prep, I was, I was definitely letting myself be weaker than I actually was. I would stumble over to the dumbbell rack, you know, grab grab the 60s for would be like my last warm-up on dumbbell shoulder press. And I'd be, and i would bringing them back to my, my the, like the place to do the, my dumbbell press. I'm like, oh my God, these are so heavy. And I'd be like, you know what, this is just going to be my working set. Before I even actually lifted it, you know. Um, fast forward to 2009. I knew that was the case and I'd seen Birdo, you know, zombie mode through it. You know, the thing about zombies is, yeah, they slow down, but they don't stop kind of thing. And and realize, you know, maybe I feel terrible, but maybe my muscle still capable of producing force here. There are times when I would just be sitting there looking like a dead person sitting between sets of squats. And then I'd get up and somehow I would hit sets of five with, with similar loads to that I would hit in squats in the offseason. Um, so I think that was that was a difference in mentality and just kind of... Ignoring the fact that I felt terrible and then focusing a little more on the more objective RIR rating that is, you know, still subjective in nature. But um, so I think I think how you apply RPE during prep versus the off season might change a little bit. I'm much more comfortable with someone just going in and going, yeah, I got three by 10. And they should be between a six to eight mm. RPE in the off season. But if you do that during prep with someone, especially if they're not experienced, that might result in loads doing this. So I'd rather go in there with a percentage uh, and then adjust after that. So I think that's a really good way to do it during prep is you go, I've oh, got 3 by 8 at 70%, and by the way, the RPE should be between 7 and 9. That way, at least they'll get that first set of 8 in at 70%, and they can actually see how they performed, and they kind of have to do it. you know. Yeah. Um, and yeah, if it's a 10 RPE, then great, we know to go down. But it might not be, even though you feel like it'll be a, a 12 RPE, you know.
0: Yeah, that's a huge one. I I really like all of uh, those points and I'll be putting them uh, to good use, man. Believe me. I wanted to address something that you mentioned then and it was funny. I actually thought to ask you this before you even voiced it and that was the criticisms of you um, and I guess that filtering down into 3DMJ um, as being overly conservative, you know, um, to use uh, your good friend Mike Isretel, um as a you know, the complete contrast or you know, someone who is viewed by many people as being you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum to you, um, he's very aggressive, assertive in terms of his approach to training. It's get results and be as jacked and fucking shredded as humanly possible. The rest is fluff versus you having a more delicate and, you know, as you mentioned, conservative approach. Um, I guess why, why is that the case? you know, if you could think on a really deep level and explain to people why, you know, besides obviously working with people in a contest prep, you know, why you feel or where this conservative nature towards training has stemmed from, like whether it's past injuries, your experiences, you know, what do you think has molded you to be more holistic and I guess uh, considerate in how you approach training and nutrition?
1: Well, obviously I'm going to be speaking from my own bias and, and what I think I do is the the best way to do it or I wouldn't do it that way. Yeah. But I'm also aware that, um, it may not be the best way to do it given that I'm only one person and I've only seen the clients I've trained with and I only have my experience and those of our collective athletes at 3 dmj But I, I, think the perspective comes from, uh, the fact that the, the primary binding characteristics of bodybuilders is hard work. Mm. And that, very basic feeling in nature um, is something I had as well. Like when I, I had a nickname, it wasn't a great nickname, but it was a it's, it's a cool nickname. And what it was in my early days, it was the Relentless Warrior. That that's that's Jeff Jeff Alberts called me that, um, and it kind
0: so of it's so unoriginal, stopped. Jeff.
1: It's yeah, it was it was, was two thousand nine. You know, things things were it's a different time. You know, like uh, don't 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 judge the old folks. Um, But myself and like uh and I I was known as a hardworking bodybuilder among bodybuilders. Mm. Um and you know, I came up following Lane Norton and and that was kind of the ethos I I fell in line with. I wasn't known as the conservative thinker. You know, that that wasn't my (laughs) that wasn't my nickname, never has been. Um and like my very first workout, I I threw up after a leg day and and it injured my back, and that's when I knew I loved bodybuilding, and that's kind of been, like I've I've always come at this with with that being at the core of things. So, I've seen that to get success, I've had to moderate that. Um, sometime in around 2006 or 7, uh, even even in 2008, I would say, I think the thing that was holding me back was having that unrestricted. Um, Effort, intensity, and and aggressiveness in the gym. I, I remember I, I look back on a log my 2007 prep. My old uh, training partner, a good friend of mine, Adam Ripa, was calling me out basically because I did 36 sets on on like a, a delts day. Like delts, 36 mm. sets or so. I was like 20. The point is, it was well beyond 20 sets on, on a single day of delts, and I was somehow trying to. Uh, rationalize that as being acceptable, um, and it wasn't, and it was probably actually doing more harm than good based on what we know now. And like for the most most of my career, I would only try to find splits that worked if I could train six days a week, uh, you know, well, because I, you know, like there wasn't anyone in bodybuilding who was saying you shouldn't take at least one off day. So I would just filter whatever messages I could find that resulted in me being able to train as much and as hard as I possibly could, you know. And I called myself a power builder, mainly because I like to train heavy, with high volume, and to failure. So, yeah, so I'm going to say that's what I'm doing, because it fits with with my my personality. So I think as soon as you decide to point that out in a culture, and you say, look – Sure, in gen pop, the issue is almost always you're not working hard enough. But among competitive bodybuilders, that's rarely the issue. Mm. And perhaps we need to think about being more measured and planned, not crash dieting, uh, not training the failure all the time, uh, actually taking deloads like every single other athletic endeavor that has ever existed uh, and every coach and and, and athlete will will recommend and that no, bodybuilding isn't different. you're going to get some some labels of, oh, yeah, whatever, bro, um, and just thinking you're being too conservative. But I think it also comes from the fact that what might be appropriate for a given individual and what might be an appropriate thing to say when you're speaking to everyone interested in bodybuilding should be different. Like the volumes I've had some of my athletes do who are competing at the WMBF world level or… Uh, who are trying to make it to like, I'm I'm thinking of someone specific, like Canadian nationals and what they've had to overcome and push through um, would crush 99% of people. And they'd be like, oh my God, Eric's trying to murder this person. Um, And that contrasts starkly with what I will say in my Muscle and Strength Pyramids books because Mm. I'm going to have people who are reading it who are 18 and started lifting weights eight months ago, you know. And maybe have shit genetics and don't sleep well, you know? And so you have to, you have to be able to provide, like first is do no harm in my opinion. Mm -hmm. You know, not that I'm a, I'm not that I'm a medical doctor, but um, I want to give the recommendations that are the least likely to injure everyone and get the closest to optimal I can while still being able to be applied and understood by everyone. And that is a tall order. So I think it makes a lot more sense to err on the side, of being a touch more conservative than a touch more aggressive when you're talking to everyone, um, but then again, that's why I always try to speak in, in ranges and caveats. But mm. not everyone hears that,
0: so that's not sexy. No, no, it's and ju- it's just right. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it first, guys. Eric Holmes is right. <laughs> um, that's it, period. Yeah. Period. <laughs> um, yeah, and I completely agree. I actually remember seeing like some of your training footage from back then and like listening to your, um, I think we, you weren't doing a video log, but I remember there was training footage like floating about somewhere on YouTube maybe. I don't know. Anyway, I remember and yeah, I know that your conservative nature isn't, you know, a function of your athletic endeavors, more so what you're doing as a science communicator. Mm. I see that, and I think a lot of people don't see that, which is what brings me to my next question, which is the struggles that you obviously face as somebody trying to communicate science and teach um, on such a large scale. Um, what what are you dealing with at present, and you know what are some things you hope to overcome?
1: That's a great question. Yeah, and um, and that is one. It has so many interacting factors. So the way we communicate science always have to be has to be over a medium, right? So in fitness, which is a experiential and visual, especially bodybuilding being visual um, endeavor, Instagram, uh, YouTube, and uh, to some degree blogs and podcasts, but with a very different audience, are the ways that we do that, right? Um, I feel most at home on podcasts and writing blogs because yeah. I can take the time to express myself and put the caveats in and uh, you know, express the level of doubt I have, or the level of certainty I have or the situations when something might not be appropriate uh, in the context with whatever claim I am making or whatever topic I'm addressing. But that's much more difficult. Like you can do it on YouTube if you want to make a 20-minute video and I'm probably most well known for 20-minute videos. But the... Just to give you kind of a contrast as to know who is on the YouTube uh, like demographic versus the podcast demographic, we, in a month, a good month, we might get like 100 to 200,000 downloads on our podcast. You know, that's that's fantastic. We're so happy. I um, got, got a siren going by. All right. On the, on the other hand, the same podcast episode will come out on YouTube and we'll be lucky if we hit 2,000 views all time like mm. if you look back on a year ago's podcast I've no, have I've noticed that
0: there's been a yeah. pretty pretty big decline.
1: Absolutely. So w- you can put long form content on YouTube, but that's not the the audience on YouTube is is late teens early 20s and they typically want videos that are uh you know 10 minutes or less and 10 minutes is getting a little sketchy there bro. Um you better like scream or something like PewDiePie in the middle of it. So <laughs> Um, so you have to, you have to speak to your audience and then, so then you're limited by the medium. So once you realize, okay, I've got on Instagram, I've got 60 seconds or I've got a picture. Uh, and then I've got, you know, what, about 400 words of text. If I had to guess, i not, I can't remember what it is on Instagram. Not a lot. Yeah. Uh, and, or I've got about 10 minutes to get my thing done and I can edit it down. Then you have to decision to make between basically two types of posts. You can make a post that is general. Like a general philosophical post, it can be short. Like I can say something like, uh, "Every unit of volume is a unit of risk." That was one of my little quotes that went viral, right? Um, But and that might be a profound moment for someone. For someone, and hopefully it is, and they realize something. They go, "Ah, you know, volume. It doesn't just stimulate hypertrophy or or strength. Every time I step in the gym, you know, I can get hurt. You know, and if, if, but but I don't have the time to express. You know, what I mean by that is not Mm -hmm. do less volume." Uh, and it, I'm just saying that when we do studies on bodybuilding and powerlifting and injury risk, there is, it's tracked in injuries per unit of training time, right? So the more time you spend training, how many injuries do you get? So therefore, by definition, the more you train, the more likely you are to get hurt. Uh, so I don't have, I can't say all that. Um, so I, I have to, I have a choice. I can make a general post that might be a light bulb moment that isn't actually that informative to someone. They don't, it might change their mindset, but it's not going to have a direct impact on what do they do next time they open their fridge or they step in their foot, their foot in the gym. Or I can make a specific post that tells someone, do this, but then it's more likely to be misunderstood. So, for example, I, I can make a post
0: about seal rows, which I just did. I was just yesterday. thinking about your good mornings, your seal rows, all the specific yeah. content. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And, and I'd say that that's as close to like a. It's as close to a vacuum as I can get. Like giving mm-hmm. exercise form tips without talking about programming or, or what it's better than or 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 worse than, I won't be misunderstood, but people will definitely inject their own meaning into that. And that's that's just the risk. So like mm-hmm. you know, I, I can post about a, a barbell row and someone might think that I'm taking a shot at Dorian Yates, you know, versus just saying like, no, the more you keep your, your torso parallel to the ground, the larger the range of motion through shoulder extension, therefore more stress on the lats. And don't cheat at the top and hump your hips into the bar when it's hardest because that's when maximal tension is there. That's all I'm saying. I don't care who did what. You know? so that, but that's as bad as bad as it gets. So that, that might be a useful way to give specific advice. But again, it misses some things. They don't know how often should I barbell row, with what load. Um, when should I do a barbell row versus seal row? Or does that seal row video mean that you shouldn't do barbell rows and I should only do seal rows? And not everyone has the astuteness to realize that, oh, well, he did a video on both barbell rows and seal rows. Clearly he did them both. Like I don't just do exercises for Instagram. You know what I'm saying? Like mm. I'm an athlete. I'm going <laughs> to videotape myself training and if it works out that I can put it on Instagram, that's great. So, um, so yeah, like you have to choose between whether or not you're doing a specific post that doesn't give enough general context or a general post that doesn't give specific guidelines. And the the only way to really bridge that gap is through much more nuanced content, like a book, yeah. uh, or or a research review, or stuff like that. And um, and you have to have someone who's really willing to invest time in that. So the you know I think I think that's always the biggest challenge is that um, not everyone wants to invest the time and energy. Or necessarily has the time and energy or is at the stage in their understanding and experience with the sport. Well, that's actually going to be helpful to engage with your most in-depth explanatory content. So then you're kind of left with this realization that a huge part of your audience, regardless of whether you do a general post or a specific post, is not going to quite get it. So you just hope you can keep them around long enough and you keep making – you keep poking at the edges of uncertainty to, to get as many little bits to, to eventually connect for that person. And hopefully, if you hadn't been in their life, it would have been, or not in their life, but on their feed, I guess, uh, <laughs> that, that that some of those understandings would have happened later, that you're actually accelerating their, their likelihood of understanding things, helping them make progress in their own fitness goals, and reducing their chance of, of getting hurt or burning out or getting too frustrated to continue. So I think... That, that is typically where my head's at is I, I look at each one of those types of posts and I think about what can I do and what are the risks. And one of the motivating factors for me is that I think a lot of people don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they will make a general post or a specific post without understanding the inherent um, downsides of both. And they will make a cardinal error in which it will most likely be misinterpreted or greatly increases the number or the likelihood of people who will be uh, getting it wrong, who won't get it. And that information will be either not useful or potentially harmful uh, because you tried to give you know, specific information on too general of a, an idea or vice versa. Mm. So I think uh, you have to know the limitations of your platform and then your options and then what things are appropriate for each. Mm. And I always think about that. Uh, a lot, you know, and, and there's cool things you can do these days like infographics. Um, you know, just talking to the camera sometimes can, can be useful. You can say a lot in a minute. Um, at least I can, I can say a lot period. So, I don't know. <laughs> so, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that's so interesting to hear. And I guess you're doing a good job, number one, but number two, yeah. um, it's, it's a deep, deep rabbit hole, uh, you know, being a fitness professional or you know a science communicator, and trying to understand you know how to best evolve society's knowledge um, of something because there's lots of information out there. I guess that this will probably be the final question, Eric. You know, what is your advice for you know people who are digesting and you know disseminating all this information that's online? to actually be able to connect the dots between the information to better understand things. Like obviously it takes time Great question. Um, and it is experience, making mistakes, those kind of things. But you know, can you speak t- to that question?
1: Absolutely. You know, I think the reality of it these days, as much as we, we, we you know, people will say stuff like, oh, I only read research or, um, or you know, don't use appeals to authority. Um, is that the way we learn as humans and the way we've historically done it is through passing on traditions from person to person and through people we look up to idols and leaders in, in different fields. Um, even if you eventually get to the point where you're engaging more directly with the, the evidence, you know, kind of going back to that, you know, what is evidence based debate that we've, we've had a few times and we've talked about. Um, I still don't think it makes the most sense for someone just starting out to try to go read, full-text journal article, even from something like JSCR or SCJ. Um, And what's more likely to happen is that you're going to follow someone who seems to have some level of measure of success, seems to get you, who you connect with, and then you're going to learn from them. You're going to have a mentor through social media or blogs or something like that. So if we know that's probably the case, then it becomes absolutely critical to learn how to choose an appropriate mentor. And I think there's a much lower bar in determining the the trustworthiness of someone and the likelihood of that person to be right more than they're wrong, more than they're wrong based on uh, evaluating them as a person. So the key traits I would look for in someone, if you want to follow them and you think they're quote-unquote evidence-based, because there's a lot of people who think they're evidence-based and they maybe aren't that comfortable with the evidence, let's put it that way, is to make sure they're not speaking in hyperbole. So they're not using nevers and always. They're not exaggerating results. Um, they don't state things in absolutes. I think that's probably the biggest one you should pay attention to is something is stated as an absolute, like, this is this is just the way it is. Uh, that should really make you question because there's so much context and so many shades of gray uh, in, in everything in life, but also in, in bodybuilding and, and uh, in science and all that stuff. So you want to look for someone who... Um, Changes their opinion, um, points out when they're they're wrong or right. Uh, sorry, when they're wrong, especially uh, it seems to value helping people more than digging their heels in and being correct. You know, it's not about uh, them being guru. They're 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 not trying to make themselves up on a pedestal. Rather, they're actually trying to genuinely help and, and share information. So you're looking for a lack of speaking in absolutes, not exaggeration. Also like specific numbers is always like a weird one. Like it's typically comes from like supplement companies. Like this will increase your bench press by 10%. You know, they're pretty much either making it up completely or they're citing just the mean from one study. um, The one study that does show, show it's beneficial and they don't even understand how science works. Right. You you don't, you wouldn't tell everyone that they're going to have the average response or we wouldn't need to calculate averages. Right. It doesn't make any sense. So I think, being aware of those things. Um, when someone speaks about individual differences, they speak about context, they make disclaimers, uh, they they give you statements of probability, and they don't speak in hyperbole or absolutes, that's someone who you should follow. Uh, someone who has the answer, uh, someone who has a uh, a specific program, like... I think it's very important for you as a person to realize the difference between, as a follower or trying to gain information, the difference between principles and systems, okay? So everyone who's listening, this is very important. I'll probably write a blog post about this in the the future. Um, Sometimes people will ask me, hey, should I follow 531 or, or, or the training programs in the pyramids? And they're not the same. 531 is a system. It's a specific program. It's a systematic approach to try to achieve progressive overload based on the same principles that 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 I based the programs in the Muscle and Strength Pyramid on. And those are just examples. So if, if you are not at the point where you can understand the difference between a system and a program, or sorry, a system versus principles, you need to be. Like uh, the principle of progressive overload, the principle of specificity. These are things that are aren't going to change, and they need to be understood. And they need to be differentiated from a specific program that into the famous person wrote or or nutritional approach or whatever, and I think uh, a large issue with people out there is they don't get that distinction um, so I think focusing on principles and following trustworthy people will save people a lot of headache, and that's the biggest advice I can give those who are who are looking to learn coming up in the game
0: man that was awesome that was really really cool. Um, Thanks, man. Yeah, so I guess we can leave it there. Guys, uh, Eric Helms, make sure you follow him. Uh, subscribe to the 3DMJ YouTube channel. Subscribe to Mass. Um, I'll leave links for both of those in the description box below. Eric, thanks again and I'll speak to you next time, man. Thanks, brother. Thank you.